0: But I mean there's like a particular kind of disabled and autistic fuck it where you're just like you don't understand the most basic shit about me and in fact it disgusts you. So I'm just going to go my own way, I'm going to do it my way, like fuck you. When you don't have shit you might as well go for broke and you might as well do something that just looks completely quote unquote crazy to other people because it works, you know, and because you have nothing to lose.
1: Hello, and welcome to Possibilities Podcast. I'm your host, Among. This season is called Possibilities of Love, where we explore how genuine transformative care for each other can generate the loving world we so deserve. Today's guest is the prolific Leah Lakshmi Peeb Samar Sinha. Leah Lakshmi is a non-binary femme, autistic disabled writer, space creator, and disability and transformative justice movement worker of Burger and Tamil Sri Lankan, Irish, and Roma ascent. They are the author or co-editor of 10 books, including The Future is Disabled, Prophecies, Love Notes, and Morning Songs, Beyond Survival, Strategies and Stories from the Transformative Justice Movement, co-edited with Egeris Dixon, Tonguebreaker, Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice, Body Map, Bridge of Flowers, Dirty River, A Queer Femme of Color, Dreaming Her Way Home, and The Revolution Starts at Home. Leah Lakshmi is the winner of Lambda Literary's 2020 Jean Cordova Award, honoring a lifetime of work documenting the complexities of queer of color, disabled femme experience. They are a 2020-2021 Disabled Futures Fellow. Since 2009, they have been the lead performer with Disability Justice Performance Collective Since Invalid. And since 2020, they have been on the Programming Committee of the Disability and Intersectionality Summit. Raised in Worcester, Rust Belt, Central Massachusetts and shaped by Toronto and Dacoronto and Oakland. They are currently working building living altars slash the Stacey Park, Melbourne Liberation Arts Center, a disabled BIPOC writer space and accessible writer's retreat for disabled BIPOC creators. They are a haggard porch and couch witch and a very unprofessional adaptive track rider. And this conversation is really timely and timeless. You know, I, I got to have it and experience it in a moment that I really needed it. And I hope this offers you the caring possibilities you need as you take in this episode. Lots of love. Here's my conversation with Leah Lakshmi Summer Sinha. Thank you for taking the time, making the time to chat with us on your book tour. Oh. I mean, it's a virtual one. So what's the experience like of doing this book tour in this way
0: yeah good question it's a lot of things so first I was like okay I got this book coming out and it's a COVID disabled pandemic book so obviously I'm gonna have an all virtual tour because that's all I've been doing for the past two years since the pandemic started and it was really like it was a lot of things it was really interesting because I mean on the plus side of things because I work in like disabled community spaces It was not hard to just reach out to like seven, eight different places just to start and be like, okay, so yeah, we're going to do a virtual event. And there wasn't the kind of resistance that was so common for years before the pandemic in most spaces of like, oh, there's no way we can do that, right? Even for people who really had resources and technology and things like that. Like organizing it, I mean, all these people were like, Yeah, we've gotten really used to doing Zoom events the last two years. So we know how to do it, we know how to pin the interpreters. A lot of them had worked out arrangements already with like local disabled organizations to be able to like fund captioning and ASL and do outreach and things like that. Yeah. So that part was great. And the thing that was interesting was that when I posted, after I did, you know, the hundreds of hours of work that goes into planning something like this, even when it's virtual, right? Which you do not get paid for. I posted it and I was surprised by the fact that a lot of people, including people I know, including some people who I know are disabled, were like, oh, I'll see you in Chicago. And I was like, girl, I'm not going to Chicago. <laughs> like, I'm like, And it was so funny and it was actually really telling and about the moment we're in and the moment that I really Mm. inhabited in doing these events and like launching the book at this moment in time in fall 2022, where I was like, wow, things change so fast. Yeah, Like a year ago, it would have been like, oh, of course it's virtual. But now we're in this, oh, what pandemic, like overall thing. So all these people are like, so we're going to see you. And I was like, girl, I'm still high risk. There's no way A, for myself personally, that I'm going to hop on 17 planes and go all over the place. And B, I was just like, wow, this is the thing that as disabled people, one of the things that I feel like we keep saying, which is, it's not just about me, it's about being responsible and accountable to disabled communities where I'm like, so you think I'm going to invite all these disabled people to come and sit in a little bookstore and like, Breathe on each other to hear about a disabled book. I'm like, that's like inviting people to a death trap. Why would I do that? Right. And then I had all of these people, like disabled and chronic ill folks, being like, "Thank you so much for virtual events." And it was really great. And also. It made me feel really sad because what they were saying was so many places have just abandoned virtual or hybrid events that are just like, well, we have to go back to normal because nobody liked that stuff. Like, that's a bummer. And as a neurodivergent person, like I get burnt out on Zoom. And But, you know, jumping back, I'm like, I don't hate Zoom at this moment where everyone's still getting sick and the pandemic's not over. Like, I want to use this to keep our communities alive. And I'm like, oh, I thought that maybe more of us would still be on that train. And for me, I'm like, yeah, 2020 was like disabled working year. Like I've never gotten so many mm. asks to come teach people about disability and I was like, oh, I thought y'all would retain the information. But two years later, it's like, that's over. Yeah, I feel like I write something about being a touring artist and it changes every time. Like the chronically ill touring artist pro tips thing that I wrote in Care Work. I read that and I kind of cringe because I was like, yeah, you know, just take activated charcoal when you're throwing up and just sit on the heating pad at the Megabus. And I was like, God, that was fucking horrible. And I feel like for the next book, I'm going to be like, yeah, so booking online tour is great. And here's some stuff I learned because we're always learning and we're always growing access. Like I recently got some really useful critical feedback from a deaf person in community who was like, hey, like actually the way the ASL has been happening for the events is not ideal or great. And like, I've got some feedback for you Mm -hmm. and I need you to take this in. And I was like, okay, like I'm going to do that. I'm still learning and researching and like taking in what's being shared. But I think that part and also like the complications of Zoom as a neurodivergent person where I'm like, I'm not designed for forward-facing on screens 12 hours a day.
1: Yes, this time is such a weird one. It feels like such a such a transition moment, but transition from something that we were just temporarily in almost, and where we're going, who knows? And so I really appreciated reading your book in this time and hearing your experience of this kind of messy space we're in and we're creating and we're moving towards. That was actually my, my real... What you're actually sharing right now was my real experience of even reading your book was just like visioning the future, both from a place of so much held knowledge that was already there. Like we were just saying that Zoom events were things that people were resistant to doing, but it's not that they weren't happening. It's not that people weren't connecting virtually. It's not the same thing. But as an immigrant myself, I connect with my family virtually all the time. That's just like a normal way of being. And I remember feeling early in the pandemic, I was like, oh, people are getting to experience a part of my life. But and, you know, and I think this has been true for other people in different ways. They have to have community that's further away to get the kind of care that they need because for whatever kind of reasons. And I can really see how the pandemic really brought forth that experience for more people, brought forth the need for safety in a different way, right? But it's interesting, the kind of resistance to sustaining that, even though the threat hasn't gone, the kind of resistance to... Something as so simple, wearing masks. And what I read in your book so much was that the kind of creativity, the kind of possibility of sustainability long-term already exists in disabled communities. And so what was your experience like watching this kind of expansion of the knowledge being kind of uplifted, as you were saying, it's been really big money years for you, maybe workshop years, and then seeing the kind of dissipation of that where people who feel like they can now take the risk of not showing up that same kind of care for themselves for others, because you know, they can't really predict about what's going to happen when they go out and take those kinds of risks. This is still community to have virtual community.
0: I mean, first of all, I just want to say thank you for bringing the piece about being an immigrant and just being like, yeah, of course, we communicate on zoom. And like, That's so important. And like, I'm the child of an immigrant, but I was a kid in the 80s, you know, so we didn't have online anything, right? Like my dad was writing Aerogram letters to his family.
1: Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. You know, and then it would just be like, okay, no, like the 10 minute phone call, because that's all we could afford. Yeah. Because it was so much money. So when Zoom and things came in, like I just saw the way that transformed diaspora, right? Where it's like, oh my God, you actually, it's not a month in between sending the news and getting it or telegrams or things like that. Yeah. And it was actually affordable. Like if you had internet, you could do these things, right? Like even just getting the phone cards from the dollar store where all of a sudden, like, you know, you called the 800 number and it was a penny a minute. Oof. That was such a game changer. But in terms of that question of like, 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 how come people retreated? Like, how come people were like, well, fuck this? The simple answer is it's ableism. But also there's other stuff where it just has felt like such a white thing to be like, oh, I have to be in person with my family. Like, I'm like, bitch, my family lives in Australia. Like, like, I haven't seen a lot of my family. Like, the last time I saw my grandmother on my Sri Lankan side was when I was four years old because we couldn't afford to travel. Like, there's just an anger I get sometimes where, like, I understand what people are saying and I understand... To a degree, sure, like for certain cultures, especially like in-person is very important, all of that. But there's also a way it feels like a luxury and a privilege where I'm like, do you know how much online stuff changed disabled community and immigrant communities? Right now, we're seeing this like complete destruction of Twitter. And a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, great. Like, fuck social media. One of the things that's really held the blooming of disability justice community and organizing and activism and recruitment over the past 12 years has been social media and online spaces. Mm -hmm. Like, I just posted this thing that Amani Barberin, who's like Black disabled TikToker and thinker and writer, posted with Twitter crumbling, it feels like the world is collapsing on disabled people. And I'm like, yeah, like when I was sick and disabled, talk about isolation. When I was disabled in Toronto in the late 90s, early 2000s, and I barely had a phone, did not have internet. I was alone like I could not pick up my cell phone and find disability Twitter or like disabled hashtags on Instagram or like a discord where there's mutual aid asks for all over the world and people are connecting from isolation and that was true for so many disabled people. And speaking of somebody who's chronically ill and immune compromised, there was a specific experience of being isolated in that space because you're immune compromised. Like people don't understand viruses. They don't understand being at risk. They don't understand that like you really have to protect yourself because if you get their little cold, you're gonna have pneumonia for two months, right? Yeah. And so many disabled people who I am now friends with going on 10, 12 years, We met in the days of the early internet because there were Facebook groups for disabled queers for the first time or things like that. And we were all in our little isolated disabled apartments. Maybe there was no one else we knew locally who was like radical, queer, black, brown, disabled, but we could find each other. And that has fueled so much organizing and growth and healing and like has saved people's lives. So I just want to lift up those things. And I guess in terms of like, you know the meat or the tofu or whatever i love that just like i always say the meat and then i'm like god vegans are gonna get mad at me so like the protein (laughs) of the question it's been kind of surreal like care work came out in 2018 and some of the pieces in the future is disabled are essays that i wrote in 2019 like i'm always working on something so there's different pieces that i worked on pre-pandemic if you're listening to this being like fuck, I didn't write a book during the pandemic. Please do not feel ashamed. Like I had half a fucking brain and it was really slow. And, you know, honestly, it was also supported by the fact that there's this first ever big disability fellowship, this Disability Futures Fellowship that was $50,000 over two years that I got. I've never had money like that in my life. And I, I'm, you know, being a working class kid, I still have it in the bank, some of it in the bank. You know, I wasn't scrambling to get by like so many people. Like I wasn't reading tarot cards in my room. I wasn't having to take every gig. So I had like like with money and some access to that, comes some ability to like write and think and a cushion where I was able to cry on the fucking couch. Yes. A lot of the pieces were written in like 2021 pandemic, were just culturally to take us back. A lot of terrifying things were happening. 2020 in particular is a time of mass Black-led resistance, right? And overlapping, like, mass disability resistance, campaigns against care rationing, campaigns against, you know, for vaccine equity, massive sharing on the part of disabled people of us, of like, hey, even when we're outside of a protest, like, let's wear a mask. Like, let's figure out how we're going to protest safely, Right. And also in some areas of North America, even a little bit from governments, this like begrudging sense of we're gonna give you serve. please stay home. Obviously, there's hard things about lockdown, but there was that rhetoric of like we're all in this together. Yeah. Which is like complicated. And things that came out of it, like in Toronto, like something I write about a little bit is caremongering. Huge online communities started by sick and indigenous like feminists. People are really like, I made 20 things about a chicken. Like who needs one? Like, who needs a mask? Who needs diapers? Like massive amounts of mutual aid. At the same time as massive abolitionist resistance and police stations being set on fire. And I really had this sense of like, maybe we're finally going to get the revolution. And it's going to be this interchange of mass disability, forcing people to be like, all right, the state really is not keeping us alive. We're keeping each other alive. Let's do this. And that extended into 2021. And then the irony of writing books is like you're writing them. I've spoken about a little bit. I really pushed myself to get this out faster than I would have normally. Like, I really told people, you're not going to see me for a few months. And then we were in lockdown again. Yeah. But I guess what I'm getting to is that, like, the world that it was happening when I wrote it, which was very much about, you know, a lot of people on the left, like, talking about disability justice, talking about mutual aid, masking, being affected by disability because they're like, oh, fuck, like, you got to wash your hands. Oh, viruses. Oh, I might die, you know, or getting sick. By the time the book was in proofreading in April, like I just remember I had left Seattle. I moved to the East Coast of the States. I was driving from Philly to Western Massachusetts. I stopped to get gas and I walked into this like rest stop in New Jersey. And it was my first experience of like, oh my God. Like I'd been in places where some people weren't masking, but I was like, no one's wearing a mask, including the staff, like the retail staff weren't masking. And that was a trip. And that was the kind of my first moment of like, we're about to go into a really weird fuck, great forgetting time. Because I was like, normally when I go to spaces, even during hiatuses and mask mandates, yeah. people who are working there would be masking because they're like, we don't want to die. But I was just like, oh my God, I'm the only one. It's that feeling of I'm the only one who remembers, and people are really just like hungry to just be like, forget the last two years, let's go shopping. And that's not something I predicted. I didn't predict that people would just be so, so, so willing and able and ready to be like, we want to forget. We want to disassociate. We want to just like throw away everything we've been practicing. And that that would include large sections of the left, whatever you want to call it, of like queer and trans BIPOC communities, you know. 100%. Where all of a sudden I'm like, Yo, like, party promoters, I love you, but really, like, masks courage and no one's masking, and I'm just looking, and everyone's like, yay, isn't this great? And I'm like, I'm, wow, I'm feeling like it's a flashback to being disabled in 1999. For a minute, it felt like everybody kind of got what being immune compromised, what being disabled was like, and about, like, okay, we're going to make sure that grandma doesn't die, that your kid doesn't die, and now it just kind of feels like this death cult of denial, and we're the disabled cassandras the disabled oracles as Alice Wong writes about yeah. who are being like hey you know every week posting the people cdc being like so there's you know another 3000 people died this week i actually worried that a lot i was like god is this book going to be dated by the time it gets out and then i what i wasn't expecting was the histories that i write about they don't even feel like history it was last year but it feels like because the push to forget is so strong people are like, thank you for remembering September 2021. And I'm like, guy, it was last year, but okay. A quality of being a disabled cultural worker or writer or community member is that there are all these like little big moments of disabled activism that happened that are really big and that you remember it. And then you're like, oh shit, but other people didn't even know what was happening And if we don't write it down, they're going to be forgotten so easily. Because I think one specific way ableism functions is that while we're alive, it tries every way it can to erase that disabled activism, culture, organizing communities, people exist. Yeah. Right? And it also tries to kill us every way it can when we're alive and erase us when we're dead. And it's changed because of like fervent disability justice organizing and story sharing. But one of the barriers to disabled activism and DJ taking off is that people often are said like, what do you, you say? Disability community. And it's like crickets. People are like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, no, like every cultural group, we have communities, we have histories. We are a series of peoples. We have elders. Like we have lineages. Yep. This is the thing. We're not just individual health defects. Right. And like your survival is very, it behooves you to learn about this. So I guess long story short or long story longer I'm really glad that I wrote down all these little disabled moments in time, or as many as I could, which I never thought I would forget. But I want those to go out there. Like I always think of disabled books, like cutie by poke books, my books, you know, as like community organizing in a book where I'm like, okay, if you're disabled somewhere, you can pick this up and be like, wow, that's an action that disabled people did. Wow, like when the power got cut off in Northern California, Stacy Milburn Park and all these people. Organized generators and organize whole Google map of like, oh, if you don't have power at your place, here's where you can go. You can go to this person's house and charge your wheelchair, right? Like these are things that we did. And if I can say one last thing, like, I guess just speaking to like the complete, we're in this moment. It's like when the wave has hit the shore and it's about to go in and come back, but we don't know what form it's going to take yet. Like that unpredictability you spoke to, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that I mean, also, long story short, like, I feel like when I was writing it, I kind of was like, well, maybe we'll have the rev, you know, if we keep going in this way. And instead, we're in this, like, space of in between where some people are like, "Nope, actually, I just want to go back to normal. And a lot of us are stunned and grieving and unsure. That's one thing I keep coming back to when people are like, "What? what is this disability futurism you speak of? When people look to science fiction or futurism, or, you know, or people talking about the future, or even just like revolutionaries, they're like, "Tell me how it's all going to work out." Like, give me a nice, simple story. And I think the thing with crip futurism is that it goes back to the like, we don't know what will happen. It's so unpredictable, and that's what I ended the book with. Was I was like, "What we know as disabled people, in particular as disabled Black and Brown people, we're going to keep facing every single what the fuck with innovation and with doing." These actions, which can look really small, quote unquote, and invisible, but which actually have a huge amount of impact.
1: No, it's so true. I really, really love that. And I really love the kind of scope of that. Yes, there is unknown. There is unknown in the future. And and one of the other things that you talk about in the book is it's like the desire to cure. Future is about curing. It's about like erasing something that exists now. And I also wonder in that kind of erasure that people are trying to do in the future, there's also this thing now that's happening, right? Where like, we're just like, let's just forget. Let's just forget. And I think part of that is, Something that was coming up for me when I was hearing you talk was like, it's one of the ways people grieve. Oh, yeah. It's this huge sense of mass grief, because almost everyone has been touched by something huge. And you talk a lot about grief in your book, in the really big ways in which you personally experience it, where communities are holding you time and time again. And I wonder about how some of this is just not knowing how to grieve and using this kind of little bit of unknown, I just need to hold on to something because I can't deal with my grief.
0: Oh, yeah. I, th- I think it's absolutely bad. In the States, anyway, I'm just like, yeah, we haven't had any mass ceremonies from the powers that be, which, okay, fuck the powers that be, but, like, when it is at this scale, oh, still. right? And, like, when you think about, like, you know, there's the Vietnam War Memorial for, like, Americans who died in the war, right? Yeah. It's just really been, like, go back to work, go back to shopping. It's fine. So, of course, like, there's a line I love in the film, Sorry to Bother You, which for people who don't know, is this like black socialist surrealist like film, where Squeeze, who's this like Asian, organizer, you know right? he says, you know, the thing is, when people are facing a problem, if you don't give them a way to fight it, they don't fight it. They just figure out a way to get used to it and survive it. Yes. And I'm just like, that is it. That is it. So obviously a lot of people are like, I can't cry for 40 fucking years. I got to go to work. You know, or like, I need a break from it. Because like, honestly, some spaces of grief that we do know, like a lot of people hate funerals, right? Like, for some people, they're significant. And for some people, they're like, I need to get out of here and have a drink immediately. Like, this feels like crap. Or so I understand the drive towards denial as a form of survival. And I also want to differentiate from that and be really clear. I'm not like calling out anybody for being like, yo, I just need to do something else. And I also want to name that some of us have more ability to go into denial than others. Because what you said about how everyone's been touched by COVID. You don't know anyone who hasn't lost somebody. That's really true. I notice even with some of my white disabled friends, like I lost so many people in 2021. Like people who are very close to me and also people who just matter to me. And it was just like, ping, 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 ping. You know, every week there's somebody else. And my wife friends would be like, oh, sorry. And I'm like, yeah, people aren't dying as much, huh? And like, that's true for me as somebody who at this point is like crippled lower middle class. Like I was thinking about, you know, people talking about how there's areas in the States, like Elmhurst, Queens, right? Which was known as one of like the big hotspots early in the pandemic. Yeah. There's a lot of undocumented people there who couldn't go to the hospital. I don't know. And I can't speak for them, but like imagining it, that's got to be people who are like, yeah, I know 50 people who died you know and who maybe aren't talking about it because it's not safe or talking about it in very specific spaces right
1: yeah there's an interpersonal nature and then there's a systemic nature of it where obviously it is 100 impacting everyone so differently i think in the book it's so clear about how you do pull out both the ways in which the systemic kind of institution is creating separation between us but also how when people don't fit in the kind of communities that they create to kind of hold each other down. The state is always going to come short, even for the people at the top of it. As painful as it is to be kind of pushed out of it, there's something freeing and beautiful about creating the future with each other. And I wonder if you could talk about that. What do you think is this complete beauty of not being tied to how things are because it's not working anyway?
0: (sighs) Hmm. It's a great question. I'm going to use the word I feel complicated about. I think it makes you a lot braver. And that's a complicated word because so often disabled people get that pat on the head like, you're so brave, you know, and I, and I just, I don't mean it like that. But I mean, there's like a particular kind of disabled and autistic fuck it, where you're just like, you don't understand the most basic shit about me. And in fact, it disgusts you. So I'm just going to go my own way. I'm going to do it my way. Like, fuck you. Like, you know, I might as well. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because, you know, there's a dynamic that I've experienced sometimes personally and that I've witnessed happening where sometimes... I or another disabled person will be doing this, that, or the other. And there'll be an assumption from an able person of like, oh, you must be rich or privileged to do that. And I'm like, no, actually it's the opposite. It's like, when you don't have shit, you might as well go for broke and you might as well do something that just looks yes. completely quote unquote crazy to other people. Cause it works, you know, and because you have nothing to lose. And because also, you know, that some of the only things that have saved you are just this like crip, crazy, neurodivergent death shit that's just completely off the radar of able people. You know, able people are so limited. Just this sense of like, we can't do it like that. I mean, and there's a million examples. Like, I mean, pre-pandemic, I'm not an academic, obviously, but um, I was invited by some activist academics to come to the American Studies Association Conference, which happened to be in Hawaii that year. And it was during a period where... I was having a body crisis where I had like blown four joints. I was subluxing them, which means you partially dislocate them. Mm. And the doctors were all like, we don't know, ibuprofen. And, you know, and I just was in a lot of pain. And I've been a disabled road warrior for a lot of my life. And as somebody who's a walkie, you know, who's ambulatory, Mm. it's something that at times with friends of mine who are wheelchair users, who are like, we just can't fly because the risk of the airline is going to break our wheelchair. So I would be like, I'm the front guard. Like, I can walk with a cane. Like, I'll go out there and talk and we'll Zoom you in. But then, like, I was there and I was like, hey, guys, like, I actually can't get on the plane. But there's a technology called Zoom and you're at a fucking Hilton. So I'm sure you can work it out. And they were all like, we can't do that. Well, zoom, I don't know what that is. I mean, I, I, we don't know if the Hilton will have Wi-Fi. And I was like y'all and meanwhile like Lydia Brown you know autistic Chinese activist you know was just like dude I'm going I'll put the projector and my computer in my fucking carry-on and like I'll zoom you in and all of these able people are staring at Lydia like they're doing this like seance as they're setting up the zoom and I'm like <laughs> y'all, this isn't even that hard like this is like so basic yeah. I mean we figured out such harder shit and so I guess like there's like That's the thing. Like a lot of times when I'm giving talks and maybe there's somebody who they're like, I, this is my first disabled anything, you know, and they're like, what do you mean disabled joy? Doesn't it just suck? And I'm like, no, it's in spaces where like we're all stimming together or like, yeah, you were isolated during the pandemic. I had like 20 years of practice alone and in disabled community at navigating isolation. So like actually, I mean, there was that thing where a lot of Crips, especially early in the pandemic were like, Y'all are talking about feeling isolated. I feel less isolated because everything's online and because there's a mainstreaming of, like, oh, of course we're all going to watch Dune together at home and be on a chat thread talking about it or whatever. Like, I remember this time specifically that I wrote about where I was on, you know, tour for, with Care Work. It was 2019 and it was the Midwest leg of the tour. I was doing like Detroit, Ann Arbor. Chicago, and Minneapolis, and it was a mix of community spaces, bookstores, and different kinds of academic spaces. But at the more like standard spaces, I would just be like, okay, guys, like I'm wearing this t-shirt that says the future is accessible. So I want you to close your eyes and imagine what that is. And there were so many people who were just like, no, I can't imagine anything. And I was like, Mm -hmm. really, because like, I think a lot of disabled people can And it's because we're like, okay, you won't even, like, a ramp is too hard, captioning is too hard, ASL is too hard. Fuck you. Like, we're going to do that, and we're going to figure out how to do that because we know how to do that. And we're also going to imagine a lushly disabled future, like Bani Amor. They're a disabled queer trans um, South American writer, and they write a lot about being disabled and traveling and being an immigrant who goes bef- between their home i believe in Venezuela and living in New York and what it's like to like travel while disabled. Yeah. And they just written this piece that was like, "So yeah, you're a disabled immigrant dealing with long haul. Here's what it's like." And they're talking about like the different ways cuz they're like, "Yeah, I have different disabilities." And they're like, "Everything sucks. Like I can't sit for a long time. I also can't stand for a long time. Here's what it's like being in you know, the airport and like the different things that happen and all the class and race and gender and and migrant, you know, dynamics. What would air travel be like where it wasn't just the bare minimum of access, but where it was like luxuriously and decadently cripped out? I think that that's a dynamic because so much of the time As disabled people, we are fighting for like one-tenth of the bare minimum. Like we're fighting to not have our wheelchair broken. We are fighting to not be abused on the plane. We're fighting to get on the plane. We're fighting to not have to get on the plane. But then I'm just like, wow, would it be like a solar airboat with like many beds and like ice packs and like really great air filtration? Would we not use planes at all? Like would it be like clipper ships that are solar? And bullet trains. I'm a new Trek nerd. Like, I love Star Trek Discovery. So I'm just like, when do we get the transporters? And when are they fueled by sentient light that, that isn't extractive from anybody's fossil fuels? Yes. Do you get a massage afterwards? Like, is capitalism and ableism over so our overall health as disabled people is better because we're no longer stressed out having to fight not to die. Yes. So there's so much more room to flourish and be creative. And I guess like going back to like my experience being in those kind of frozen rooms with very scared, often young people in academia who are just like, I don't know, I can't even get them to approve my accommodations at a basic level. I'm like, right. yeah, That's super real. And the reason why disability justice, one of the reasons why disability justice is so important is because we do come up with shit that everyone else says is crazy and impossible. Because we're like, well, we are crazy and impossible people. And you really need us. <laughs>
1: In the most beautiful way. Yeah. The impossibility is only within us to kind of not imagine the future that we want because people imagine wild things all the time.
0: Right. Well, and I think like this is the thing too is like, I would say like the two counterpoints, they're both important, are like that wild, audacious, disabled, autistic, deaf dreaming you know, and also our realism and pessimism, right? Because like, that's one thing too, is like, there's a lot of able people who ran into mutual aid for the first time during the pandemic. And they had a lot of like, community is love. Yeah, it's wonderful. You just all come together. And we're like, no, 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 no. Like we're, no, like it's not, it's not like that. And we're like, no, like it's actually often, it's like complicated or you run into real roadblocks or people really hurt each other or you're just like, shit, everybody's spooned out. I remember this moment with a friend of mine, actually right before the pandemic, and he just was like, who's going to come and take my medical waste bags away? You know, texted the thread and everyone was like, shit, you've got a house full of bags of shit and all of us are too sick. And at that point, because it was very early in COVID, some people were like, I'm worried about going. And like, we didn't like, I mean, it was brand new. It was like February 20th. And we were like do we get masks? They're saying, don't wear masks. They're saying not to worry about it. What do we do? It's where the rubber hits the road, where sometimes you don't have a great answer. Sometimes there isn't a great answer. Sometimes there isn't a perfect answer. It doesn't mean the work is not valid. And it also really means that I think our disabled realism, which isn't a magic answer, is still really important because it's the antithesis of like, able people just having this very kind of social justice fantasy of what care and love and community is. Like, I don't know, like, as a transformative justice person, when I see the things that are, like, strong communities make the police obsolete, I'm like, yes. (laughs) And? Everyone knows that also that's, like, the tip of the fucking iceberg. And it's, like, a lot of people don't have community. A lot of community is fucked up. Like, sure, eventually it'll make it obsolete. But, like, we actually have to do a lot of skill building and dealing with our shit to get there. I was having a good conversation with a friend the other day where they were, like, I think one thing we're dealing with is that a lot of us in movement spaces, when we first find each other, it's as friends, you know? And then what happens when it's like five, 10, 15 years later? And like, some of us have had friend breakups. Some of us have had really big political differences, Yeah. but yet in the face of like fascist climate change, eudensis onslaught, we need to work together. Like you don't have to love each other or be best friends to work together. Like you can just be like, I'll fight a cop for you, even if I'm still pissed off at that thing that happened two years ago. Yeah. But that's also not simple. And a lot of us are still like, "Uh?" like I'm still thinking about the thing two years ago. Right?
1: One of the pieces that you talk about in the book is mutual aid. And this complication that you're talking about is like, this is a rah-rah kind of idea of like, what love actually looks like in that space? What does actually care feel like? And what is it not? You just did say that there was like this rah-rah kind of love is community and blah, blah, blah thing. And that's real. There's that kind of utopia creation that we have. And it's our way of having some hope. But when the rubber meets the road, the hope can really dissipate fast if you're not prepared for the messiness. Right definitely even within you like we are such complicated beings we're messy people and embracing our fullness is one of the paths to embrace somebody else's fullness hopefully hopefully it's not enough but it's one of the things i want to talk a little bit more about what you learned between writing care work in this book because you write in the book that there is something that you felt you were seeing at least in this time of this heightened desire for mutual aid and a future where that is more scaled up because I mean, to take a moment to share a little bit about my year, I have family on this side of the planet and there's been a lot of health things that came up and people who have had no kind of languaging around what we're talking about, but the kind of care networks that showed up in a moment of crisis, it was beautiful in a way that was healing because there's a culture of care You know, here I think you need to build up more of. We need to build up more of where the prioritization of care isn't about performing, that isn't about being seen as a caring person, that's about moving in a quiet way in an everyday way in a way of this is my orientation to life and the care is seeps through every act that i do and i wonder if you want to talk about that kind of dichotomy because there are these concepts and these ideas and these visualizations that we feel are a goal which you know it can show up and it should be there in organic ways but the everydayness of it the messiness of it the messiness of love and care so that we can actually meet each other
0: yeah i mean god where even to start well first of all like I think that some of the ways it was spoken of, I was like, damn, I hate this because it made it seem when the term mutual aid got popularized in 2020, 2021, people would be like, oh, you know, this is this like rarefied thing, these activists too, And I was like, no, like this is a very working class immigrant black indigenous brown thing i mean what you were talking about about like your family on the other side of the world and how care just came together right and like maybe it wasn't perfect but you were like shit they know how to do it so jumping ahead there's a bit in the book where i write about you know being asked to do these workshops about care webs and this would be all black indigenous poc space right but i would be like okay yeah so you know here's the deal da, 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 da. i'd be talking about it theoretically and then be like okay so like think about a time where you or somebody in your life needs care like what or, like, or needs it right now like what are the needs and where can you get it and people would just be like i'm sorry what and they would freeze and some people would get really angry at me wow. there was one person who was like why should i even do this i'm not going to get it and i was like okay and then people would be like which is real right super real and i was like wow yeah that's super real i'm really sorry i get it i've been there but then a lot of people were like, there's never been a time where anyone's ever cared for each other. And these were like not rich people. And I was just like, okay, what's going on here? And I was like, is the way that we think about care sometimes in a Western North American context is in this kind of ethereal, abstract way. Because I was just like, cares when someone gives you a cigarette when you're at the bus stop. Like, cares when you're waiting for food stamps and someone makes a joke. Like, or I just was like, on my end, like, it's that simple. Like, Billy Rain, William Maria Rain, who is like an OG of disability justice, was doing, you know, as like an Arab Jewish survivor of torture who's genderqueer, was like doing anti-ableist shit back in, like the year 2000. I mean, really early on in Seattle, when we'd be on these little panels and people would be like, so what is care? What is interdependence? And they were like, just make some fucking soup and bring it to someone. It's like that. Like, just that. That's really big. Like, stop people from starving to death. And I just think like, yeah, you know, immigrant, working class, poor communities, like we do that. Like, black, brown communities, we do that. Not all the time, but we do that. And I was like, Just start there. It does not have to be this whole, like, I'm an anarchist with black t-shirt thing. It's like, you literally can just make someone's mac and cheese and drop it off, or dal, or whatever. And I think that that's also a really disabled thing, which is that like I think... There's a paradigm in mainstream activism a lot like to be an activist is that's all you do. You go to 13 meetings a week. Like your life is a struggle. And a lot of people are like, I work at Shoppers Drug Mart and I have two children. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And a lot of disabled people historically and now have been pushed out of mainstream, you know, activism. Yeah. Because we're like, well, I gotta go to the doctor or I'm sick or you know, Accessible Ride didn't show up. And it's like, oh, well, you can't contribute. And the thing that I've witnessed in DJ spaces is that there's spaces where so many people have been written off and out of mainstream activism. We're like, yo, when we talk about interdependence, it's not like, oh, we all have all the energy and time and money in the world. It's like, if you have five minutes at one in the morning and you can do one thing, that's useful. And we're a powerful movement because it's everybody's five minutes come together. Yes. Right? So I think that's one thing. And then in terms of like just speaking to the other side of like, okay, what's the real deal of what's hard? I mean- Like, I have people, including people who I was doing a lot of care for and with in the last couple of years where we had to end the relationship because it got bad. Mm -hmm. You know, where I was like, okay, so you're being verbally abusive or you're, like, getting obsessed with me. So I actually, I'm going to try and talk to you about it, but if that continues, I actually am like, yo, I'm going no contact because you're scaring me, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I want to name that because... I have not seen anyone really talk about it, but I'm sure I'm not the only one who's experienced this. You know, this could happen to many kinds of people. I think that as a brown femme with disabilities, there's a way in which people are like, ooh, mama. I'm just like, first of all, I don't identify that way. And second of all, I'm like, yeah, also, I'm not an unending font of tits. There's times where I'm like, yo, like, I wish I could be there, but I can't. Or like, I want to do this for you, but actually the way you're talking to me isn't cool, so I need you to do this if you're wanting to get this. Or like... Yeah, I can't today. And I think that there's a dynamic that comes up that I wrote about and that I've witnessed during COVID, pre-COVID, is that there is a huge amount of unmet need out there. And a lot of people are used to just not getting any of their needs met. And so then when disability justice or other spaces start talking about mutual aid, interdependence, someone can bring you soup, people are like, great, I'm going to get everything. And also we're really taught to like, because of the society we live in, The overarching way we think about care is as a service. This has to be mutual. It's mutual aid. We're all going to do a little bit. Sometimes we don't have the ability. Like I'm thinking about when a friend of mine, she didn't have personal care attendants, and she's a wheelchair user, so she needed to transfer onto the toilet and things like that. I can't actually lift her on the toilet. It doesn't mean I don't love her, but we actually should fundraise to pay someone to do this who does have that muscular strength, right? And that's not us failing each other as disabled people. That's being real. It's not just about like, oh, I'm helping someone. Right.
1: Oh, I'm in relationship of care that it's expanding me in some way. Yes, you do it because of love, right? And that is an act of love and care, and that you receive something from Mm -hmm. you're not going to sit and count that and
0: tally that we're not about being a charity because the charity model is like oh you disabled person get some like shitty insure in a cup and some gruel and you better be grateful and fuck you and we're like no like it's not about that dr sammy shock who wrote black disability politics she wrote about this i think in you know as a fat black disabled queer femme Coming into like mutual aid and resistance work in Madison, Wisconsin, in 2020, she was like, "Yes, yeah, some of that mutual aid that was happening there, it was very much like charity and gatekeeping, and oh, do you really need these diapers, or are you scamming?" And she's like, "That's not where as disabled people, as Black people, were coming from with it. Number one, and number two, I also want to cite the work of Dr. Akemi Nishida, who's amazing." disabled, Japanese, immigrant, you know, like academic activist. She just wrote this book, Care Justice, that's academic but accessible, where she looks at like disabled care webs, paid caregiving, back home and in America, and she interviews paid care workers. And she's like, this is the thing. The way the the paid caregiving system is set up and operated by the state is fucked up. But she's like, so many caregivers who I talked to were like, I don't just do this because I hate it. They're just like, I love working with the people I work with. It's an honor. Yes. Like I am coming from a place of love. Like I would want my grandmother to have this care. And like, are they like immigrant women of color who are broke who are like, this is the accessible work for me? Sure, that's in there too. And are they sometimes dealing with like, yeah, that client was really racist or whatever. But there also is this like ribbon in there where there's just like, there's a lot of people I work with where it is an intimate relationship of love. Yes. And that is not something that's talked about. It's talked about as like, oh my God, you pay someone to wipe your ass. That's horrible for both. Of you no. and what both people are saying is like it can be but it also often is not often it is like so tender and beautiful and so when we're envisioning a future of a care revolution which i'm really hoping shows up any day now and that's something that's important too is like i think sometimes people are like well in the future you know we won't have paid caregivers like everyone will just have community and i'm like mm, why not both i mean even in care work like, i talk to people who are like yo Love a care collective that works for people. I want to pay people really well who know how to do my shit. And I want to have a respectful worker, disabled person relationship with them. And I want that work to be seen as skilled labor that is paid well and has benefits and dental and time off. And I want to be able to be an employer in a good way. You know, or somebody who's working with a care worker in a good way where we're building relationship over time. Yeah. Because actually some random anarchist off the internet, I don't know if I want them to see my butthole, you know, like I actually, or like, I mean, what one person I talked to was like, if someone drops me, I could die. Like, I actually want someone who knows how to safely lift me and I want them to be paid well or compensated. I want them to have everything they need. And I'm like, that's right on. That is right on. Love doesn't have to be outside of that. Right?
1: I love that so much, and I think options creates possibilities, as more of us will get our needs met, mm-hmm. as opposed to there just being like one way forward. Oh my God! You talk a lot about the language of care, you know, the language of care webs, access, intimacy, and you kind of break that down, open it up a little bit. So much of maybe your work as a writer comes in the languaging of the invisible, of the kind of invisible acts of care that is getting lifted up and brought up. And I wanted to also talk about the, the importance of that as you see it, as you experience it. There's a way in which it, a culture of care requires the normalization of a lot of possibilities right i think there's a way in which some of the panic or the shock or if this is going wrong is because we see a certain outcome as there's only one outcome that's all right and every other outcome is not all right one of the many things i love about the work you're doing is really this lifting up of the possibilities that all of these can be okay and all of these are really vibrant beautiful lush paths of living because we live on an abundant planet where all this exists right? I want to talk to you about what role do you think language plays in DJ? And what do you think are the possibilities of normalization of care webs, for example, normalization, that that is a possibility and normalization that actually a lot of outcomes can exist. And those are all paths
0: we can go down on. I think language is super language and naming and stories are all super, super important to disability justice. And One thing I've been thinking a lot about lately, because, you know, this is the fun shit I think about when I'm on the toilet, you know, is like, what are specifically disabled strategies? Because when I started thinking about this, I'm like, what's a strategy? I'm like, it's any collection of like tactics that you're doing to try and like get to a goal and win, right? So I'm just like, what are the disabled, like political and cultural strategies that we use as disability justice people? And I was like, man, the number one is cultural work actually You know, I mean, ever since I was like a little bit, you know, twenty-one year old in Toronto in nineteen ninety-six, there's been this like push from different parts of the community about like, no, cultural work is real, like art and storytelling and music and hip hop and all the things. That's not like a little frill on the side of activism. I mean, I remember being like, I was twenty-one, I was in a meeting about like the Free Mumia rally in front of the U.S. consulate, and some old Bolshevik white guy was like, "We can't have hip hop. It's not how you do a serious demonstration." We were like, "Fuck you and your paper." But I think that there's ways in which. Disability justice uses cultural work, and I'm going to say more about what I mean by that because it's broader than what people might think, as an organizing and a recruitment tool, even if we don't call it that straight out, that are different than other movements. And one of the things is, is that like a lot of people's, not that other experiences of oppression aren't in the body, but I think that disability is an experience that's really felt in your body, in your mind, right? And for a lot of black and brown people, it's all the secret shit you don't talk about. Right. So I tell the story a lot. I'm going to tell it again. Like one of my like formative DJ moments was sneaking off to go to this Sims and Valid performance in 2008 when I was going to grad school in Oakland, California. And for people who don't know, Sims and Valid is like this foundational organization that kind of started disability justice founded by Patty Byrne and Libra Moore to black and Asian physically disabled people who were revolutionaries. And I, just sat in the audience, this very, very disabled, sexy, black and brown queer audience. I'm a surrounded by 200 sexy crips who are not all white people at all. And they're flirting with each other. And I was just like, I am used to being the only one in cutie pop spaces. I'm not talking about it. So my mind's already being blown. And then I'd see this performance where Rodney Bell, who's this black Maori wheelchair using dancer, is slowly being suspended in his chair 40 feet above the stage. And then a crucifix is like you know superimposed on it with the lighting as Patty's voice is saying, "Is this safe? Are you safe? Are you sufficiently insulated from us—the disabled, the deaf, the deviant—or are you afraid you're going to get stained by our leaking needs? Is that why you try and kill us?" And then she comes back around to talk about desire, and I was just like, "You just jumped me into disability justice, like you just like brought me out." I think this still happens, but early on, people would be like, So it's a political organization? And we'd be like, No, it's a performance collective about sex. And they'd be like, Yes. What? And then they'd be like, There's enough material about disabled sex for a whole hour. And we'd be like, Fuck you. But like, <laughs> she said this thing where she was like, I could do workshops. So I'm blue in the face, trying to convince black and brown radical people to care about disability and trying to convince white disabled people not to be fucked up. Or I could do a three minute piece of performance art that engages with people's dreams and nightmares and fears and secret stories and histories. And that just fucks them up and breaks them open. And that's what I'm going to do. And I think that's what has worked. That's in Sin's performance. That's in Instagram and TikTok and Twitter. I mean, that's why we've seen this like massive buy-in that I did not see earlier in my lifetime in black and brown communities, especially among younger people, of I'm not taking 20 years to maybe identify as disabled or like integrate disability and anti-ableism into my organizing in my life. I'm seeing black and brown folks I can relate to who are disabled, deaf, neurodivergent, et cetera, talking about it. So I'm gonna come out because it's actually worth it. And because of that, we can build power. I have seen a real stumbling block where there's like, I mean, these people I know who are I'm in movement with who are often queer women of color who are not out about being disabled. And then they Mm. don't bring disability or anti-ableism or disability justice into their abolitionist work because they're Mm. still surviving by hiding because they don't want to be on the short bus. And I get it. And I'm also just like, yo, we're not going to get to where we need to go if we don't integrate this. If we want to end police brutality, 50% of BIPOC who are murdered are deaf and disabled. So if we're going to end police murder, we cannot leave out ableism or else it's just not going to work. Out of all that, the naming and the language piece is that if you don't have words for it or a name for it, you might be experiencing it. But you don't know what it is. So, I mean, that starts with terms that have been used for a while, like internalized ableism. Like, I just knew I hated myself and I felt ashamed and embarrassed and, like, all my shit was gross. And then someone was like, oh, that's internalized ableism and gave an example from their own life. And I was like, oh, is that what it is? Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. And that changed it from, like, I just suck and my body mind sucks and is an annoying, like burden for myself and everyone else to being like oh i'm just autistic and that's cool that self-hatred is not inherent that's something that was put on me yes and then going forward like i think the terms that you might be mentioning are terms that are newer that we've invented yes like crip dueling that stacy invented to describe the process of like when a more seasoned disabled person is like oh you're starting to use a wheelchair let me teach you how to drive that oh you're newly disabled let me teach you how to have sex oh you have one hour of energy in a day let me tell you what pacing is yeah and that transforms Somebody who's just like, I should die. Like, this is a fate worse than death. All I know are these terrible movie images. So like, oh, actually, I just need someone to help me put my panties on. And it actually doesn't suck. And then I can go for a walk. All right, then. I think about concepts of crip wealth, crip bitterness, and crip pessimism. And that is a strength. These are all terms that open up doors in our consciousnesses and minds. That increase the ability of what's possible. Mm-hmm. To just use one as an example, like something that I touched on a little bit in the book, and I think that a lot of people are writing about it now is so one of the things that's true about this moment in time is yes, we have this massive wave of newly disabled people who are living with long COVID. I think when I wrote the book, I was a little bit like, great, we're in the majority, so we can just take over. And then I was like, well, it's a little more complicated than that. Because on the one hand, I had to check myself because I was like, you got sick in 1997, it took you 10 years to find physically disabled community and to like actually start using a cane and come out right it took you a long fucking time to not pass so why do you think that they're just going to speed it up like yeah maybe because of dj it'll be a quicker process but maybe it won't and then you've got people who i mean there's a tendency right now where there's like people who tend to be more white and privileged who are in like long COVID ME spaces who are really just shocked that these doctors aren't treating them with respect and everyone else is (laughs) like, girl. So there's that tension. And I think there's a tension that I see a little bit where there's more black and brown poor and working class folks who might have long COVID, but they're like, well, I gotta go back to work at my shitty job. So that's nice you can protest. But actually I'm just trying to fight with the system. And, And then there's people who really are like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. And there's don't tell me a fairy story about how my life is worthy Because I need someone to tie my shoes. I need more assistance. I have less energy than I used to. And so my point is, is that like, I have this bit that's like scaling up crypt dueling on a massive scale is really needed, where we need a massive buddy system of like, I'm going to show you how not to have any energy. we're going to share disabled citizen science of different treatments and techniques and ways of being that do increase energy and do address viral load. And we also are in the unknown of like, okay, what, this is a new disease. So what is it going to look like for cardiac, brain, other shit as time goes on? But we do have the models of, for example, HIV AIDS, just for one, of people being like, okay, the science and the knowledge has changed over time. So if you're on PrEP, if you're on different treatments, your life is a lot different and your experience is a lot different than it was in 1994. So the TLDR, the too long didn't read, is like language shapes reality and consciousness. And that disabled creative language can really, really alter someone's both individual experience of disability and what we as a culture and as movements and communities know how to ask and demand and organize for and create.
1: I also think the thing that I was going to... A push towards is that it took maybe a decade to kind of come into your disabled identity and and moving in that conversation. What I was thinking about is like the really the early part of our conversation is like, where are we in this kind of mix of like, we've had this huge experience, we're trying to run away from it. But it also gave me some hope that I think actually maybe since we've all had a mass scale experience as a way in which maybe there's a way it'll shape over time maybe not just right away because we're in a we're in a cycle.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was actually talking with Cyrus Marcus Ware, who some people might know as a Toronto person, yes. yeah, long term friend, and he was like, "No, we're in." I think he called it a panarchic wave, and I was like, "What is that?" And he was like, "Yeah, so when systems change." There's, like, the part of the wave where, like, it crests and it crashes and it's, like, big revolution. And we're in the bit where it pulls back, where it feels like backlash. But he's, like, actually, it is a cycle, as you're saying. And he's, like, it feels really uncomfortable and shitty, but that's actually part of the digestion and the processing that then creates the next wave of change. Because he's, like, there may be this push to mass forgetting, but at the same time, like, a lot of us aren't, won't, can't forget And I think, like, to me, there's also the disabled element of surprise. Like, I got into a fight with someone online where they're like, no, like, if we don't change the climate in five years, we're doomed. And I'm like, yeah, and also, you don't know what's going to happen. Like, I didn't predict Trump would win. I didn't predict the COVID-19 pandemic. I didn't predict that defund the police would be on the front page of the New York Times. All that shit's wild. And that's the thing with the hope where I'm like, so what happens in five years, two years, 10 years? You know, I posted a picture of myself 11 years ago and I'm like, man, that's a whole different person. And if you told them all this shit that would happen, if I told myself then that was like kind of in this like, you know, it was the Obama era. I'm in Oakland. We're all like, oh yeah, yeah, the apocalypse is coming. But it's really kind of on a fantasy level in a lot of ways. If I've been like, yeah, two of your best friends are going to die and there's going to be a global pandemic, I would just be like, ah! And I'm like, well, actually when it's happening, it does feel that way. But also you bring each other soup and you remake yourself and you invent new ways of being right? And I'm like, that kind of dynamics is going to keep happening. Some things I'm curious about personally are, well, first of all, I'm like, well, and I keep saying this, I'm like, not only is COVID not over, but it's not going to be the last pandemic. So when the next one comes, I'm really curious about what will the state do? And what will we be pushed to do to be like, all right, mass back up forever, everybody, or something. I've been in conversation in a lot of different spaces with, you know, different groups of disabled high-risk people are like, we're going to COVID winter year three and winter is not fun because you can't hang out outside. So what are we going to do? Like in some ways I feel less stressed than I did last year because last year I was like, Mm -hmm. like it was the day after American genocide day, Thanksgiving, quote unquote, where, you know, on the radio they're like, oh, there's this thing called Omicron, but don't worry. And I was like, we're going to the grocery store. We're going to do a big food buy. I can't go out for two months because the paradigm I had been working on was, okay, when a wave hits, I just don't go out. I shield. I reduce my exposures. I figure out how to pay for grocery delivery because I can't do that. And now I'm in a paradigm of, like, the waves are never going to be over. So what are different techniques I do? I have a small local pod of disabled friends. And, like we're not all super privileged work from home people. Like one of my friends, I mean, it's a good job, but like, he's a NICU nurse, right? It's the thing. A lot of, of nurses I know didn't get COVID because they're like, well, you know, when I work with COVID patients, I'm in a negative pressure room. We all wear PPE, but he's like, well, now RSV's up. So no, we can't hang out today because I have this thing. I don't know if it's RSV or not. My point is like, I'm with a group of people who we're really honest about risk and we test before we hang out and we run air purifiers inside. And we open the windows and we have those gatherings, right? Yeah. And where I'm just like, yeah, I will wear my thickest parka and go for walks outside. And we're also like longer term. I mean, one thing that happened was like, I got rent evicted. Like my landlady wanted to up the rent at my old place in Seattle. I had been fighting with Seattle for six years. So I was like, let me move back to the Northeast. And so I'm actually, for the first time in my life, I'm not living in a big city. I'm living in a college town of 30,000 people. That's not 200 people, but it's much smaller and less dense than I'm used to. And there is a curiosity I have where sometimes when I talk to my friends in cities, I'm like, oh, I did up my chances of not getting COVID because I'm in a less dense area. Right. Right. And there's like fewer people I'm more able to isolate than my friends who are just like, oh yeah, you know, I'm in Philly and it's just like very, very dense or whatever. And I talk with disabled friends who are like, yo, we might need to leave New York or Toronto or whatever. And it's complicated because my doctors are here, but we're looking at the immigrant exurbs where there's more of an ability to have a backyard and it's not Toronto rent $5,000 for a fucking bachelor. Jesus Christ, I can't. Yeah. Also, yeah, homes for Toronto queers and stuff. People would be like, you want to rent this bachelor at Queen and Lansdowne on the third floor for like $1,800? And I'm like, my God. But so I think a lot about like, what are going to be the disabled exurb settlements? And then for people who are like, no, I can't leave cities. What's the organizing we're going to do and the demands we're going to make to make that safer? Like, what are the life pathways we're going to create? What are the different partnerships between rural communities and urban communities, right? That are going to happen because we're going to keep disabled innovating and figuring out, like whenever there's a need, we're going to be like, all right, we might be scared, we might be overwhelmed, but how are we going to create that need? Yeah. And I think that does tie into what you were saying about normalizing care webs, because as much as some people were like, oh yeah, mutually, that's so 2020. I think a lot of us are like, yeah, no, this is just shit we do now. Like yeah. the connections we built, like some of them might've burnt out the connections we built during the pandemic, but also there's a ways in which, a lot of people have those group threads, you know those group chat threads or text threads, where it's become more normal to be like hey, can you drop off a test? Or like, hey, does anyone have good information about such and such?
1: That's so beautiful. And I love this piece around the adaptation that we have now been trained into and have seen more examples of. And you have done such a beautiful job of documenting in your book and in your creations and your writing. And I really want to thank you for that, because I think the unknown is actually a really beautiful vision of the future, because it offers the pathways that we need. And I think you do an incredible job of honoring where we're at, including with the pessimism, but also the hope.
0: All of it is needed. I've read a little bit about Afro-pessimism as a non-Black person. And I think that something I've witnessed sometimes with other non-Black people of color is like when we encounter Afro-pessimism, there is this idea of like, oh, that's sad. And it's like, no, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. You can draw some similar lines with disabled pessimism where like, there's a story I tried to tell in the book where like somebody I knew who at the time was able-bodied, was interviewing me, like very wonderful person. And then she was like, I'm really new to this idea. Like I'll ask people, like, do you have a cough or a cold? And I'm realizing sometimes I don't believe their answers. And that's new for me because I'm used to trusting people. And I was like, oh, I just haven't trusted people like that for years. And she was like, really? And I was like, yeah, because like I have a compromised immune system. Like, Even if you think you're asymptomatic, I will get whatever you have. That can seem, like, sad, but I'm like, actually, that's a really useful skill. That's protective, right? I think sometimes when people talk about dreaming or futures, it's really easy for it to get to, like, oh, in the future, like, all we do is get orgasm and massages every And like, that would be great. Sometimes people are like, it's like with abolition, you know, where, like, a lot of the cognitive issue, I think, it's not just that people love the police but that they're like okay this future without cops like that sounds great but how the fuck do I get there right now when I hear the upstairs neighbor beating his partner yeah and so it's really important with both these things to be like this is a small unglamorous thing you can do now yeah which is like I don't know if you ever saw I think it was like Bel like it was this like continental Indian PSA thing a few years ago and it was kind of dorky but it was this like you know, this nonprofit had done this like series of short video clips about ways that men could interrupt TV in different like village and city yeah. contexts. It was a lot of dudes just like hearing a big fight and then knocking on the door being like, do you have a cup of milk or like, Hey, yo, you lost your ball. And then the abuser being like, Oh shit, people can hear me. Like, Obviously, it doesn't yeah. make the abuse stop, but maybe it stops the harm from happening in that moment. Yes. And I was like, "This is really important because this is a thing you can do." One of my friends, Max Airborne, who's a white super fat trans disabled person in the Bay, they really got into a thing of like things you can do, right? Like, and he's just like small things you can do that are not the revolution. And there's still shit you can do on your break at work or like something that's meaningful. And it's still the revolution. And it's still the fucking revolution because the revolution is not a pipe dream. It's all the little things that we do. Yeah, it's it's the air we breathe. It's the way we
1: move. Oh, thank you so much, Leah. This is this has been such a rich, beautiful offering. I really, really appreciate you
0: taking this time. I appreciate you. This is a great conversation. I really love this. Thank you so much.
1: <sighs> Just what I needed. Leo's book, The Future is Disabled, is out now. You can buy it at your local bookstore or borrow it from your neighborhood library. If you've enjoyed our work, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash possibilities podcast. It will be an immense support to us in doing this project sustainably. This podcast is creatively led, produced, and hosted by me, Omong. Kumari is our season producer for the show. Editing and production work for this episode is done by Katie at Vocal Fry Studios. The transcript which you can find at PossibilitiesPodcast.com is prepared by Jasmine. The graphics and social media coordination is done by Hermith. Admin support is provided by Soma. And the music for the season is by Hashil and Lady Pista. You can find us at Possibilities Podcast on Instagram or reach us through our website. This podcast season is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts, Toronto Arts Council, Groundswell Foundation, our patrons on Patreon, and by the love of all of you, our dear listeners, Thank you so much for choosing to spend this time with us. We love you.